Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and your host for this weekly review of all the latest news and developments affecting the investment trust sector. My thanks to JP Morgan Asset Management for agreeing to sponsor the podcast, which as a result will now remain free for the foreseeable future. Moneymakers is an independent research and publishing venture with a mission to explain and inform. But I must remind you that for regulatory reasons, nothing you hear from any speaker today should be regarded as constituting individual investment advice. Remember also that past performance, while relevant, is not a reliable guide to future performance. There was uh, more economic data for the markets to chew over this week, but they remained in a relatively upbeat mood. In the US, the latest retail sales figures were strong, while unemployment claims fell a little. Both sets of data suggesting that consumer strength continues. That's not so good for those fearing that inflation has yet to be tamed. As if to confirm that, the latest producer price inflation figures came in ahead of expectations in the US, although rising energy prices were almost entirely responsible for that unexpected increase. If energy is excluded, then the producer price index inflation fell both on a month-on-month and a year-on-year basis. Over in Europe, the ECB raised interest rates by another quarter of a percent, but Christine Lagarde, the head of the ECB, tried to sound confident that it would be the last increase for a while. The latest wage figures in the UK, meanwhile, showed wages still running ahead of inflation, implying that the Bank of England's work is not yet done. It's been worried about a wage price spiral. Despite what's beginning to look like a worrying rise in oil prices, uh, up to over $90 a barrel in the futures market, a rise of $20 a barrel over the past three months, it was still a positive week in the equity markets, with the UK equity market for once at the top of the leaderboard, as far as the larger markets are concerned. The FTSE and the All Share were both up around 3%, well ahead of the US indices, which ended the week marginally down. The Japanese equity market, another one I've been following with some interest, was also up this week. Despite a reversal on Friday, the great majority of gilts finished the week higher as well, with the benchmark 10-year gilt yield ending the week at 4.35%. That was positive for some of the most interest rate-sensitive sectors in the investment trust universe, Although the FTSE Investment Trust Index, which uh, tracks the performance of around 170 to 180 investment trusts that are part of the All-Share Index, was broadly flat over the week. After a relatively quiet few weeks, we had a string of interim results to chew over, as well as a couple of important news announcements. I shall be discussing uh, some of those in a moment with Tom Poynton, Executive Director at the specialist wealth management firm Barron & Grant, which constructs a portfolio's investment trust for its clients. And we also hear the latest thoughts of Dale Nichols, manager of Fidelity China Special Situations, the largest of the specialist China investment trusts, uh, on the outlook for the Chinese economy, where growth is clearly slowing and the over-indebted property sector is potentially, some say, facing its own 2008 crisis. Is this a contrarian buying opportunity? The most interesting, or certainly the most actively debated news this week, came from Hypnosis Songs Fund, ticker Song, S-O-N-G, where the board unveiled its awaited plans for the sale of around a fifth of its music catalogues, alongside a proposed reduction in fees, the repayment of a chunk of its debt, and a share buyback programme. All this clearly designed to address the trust's persistent 40-50% to discount ahead of a continuation vote that is due in the next couple of months. The package of measures announced by the board follows last week's news that Roundhill Music, ticker RHM, 
had agreed a takeover by an American firm at a 67% premium to its latest share price. The share price reaction to Song's news was much more muted, however, for reasons that I discuss in a moment. One of them being that the proposed buyer of the catalogues is a related party, the joint venture between the big private equity firm Blackstone and Hypnosis Song's management, the manager of the investment trust here in London. Potential conflicts of interest, therefore, all over the place. The shares gave up the modest gains they had made on the Roundhill Music deal last week, as many analysts had questions that they hadn't felt had been answered by the plan that uh, was announced. More on that in a moment. Elsewhere, Ediston Property, ticker EPIC, EPIC, announced the terms on which it proposes to sell its entire investment portfolio, that's 11 retail warehouses, to another American bidder, at this time a property company called Realty Income. This news came out actually on Friday last week, but it was too late to be included in the podcast then. If the sale is approved by shareholders, uh, Epic intends to enter into voluntary liquidation, it says, and the expected total payout is expected to be around the estimated post-completion net asset figure of 72 pence per share. That's equivalent to 11% discount to the end of June net asset value, and some might think are not entirely encouraging read-across for the valuations of other commercial property trusts. Although the exit price, as the board noted, is 18% above the share price when the board announced its strategic review earlier this year. The deal has been scrutinised, though, by uh, some property experts because TR Property Investment Trust, uh, managed by Marcus Fair Mudge, has given an irrevocable undertaking to vote in favour of the sale in respect of the 16.4% of the shares in Epic that it owns. And I think it's fair to say that TR Property has been uh, active in discussing the options open to the board since it announced that strategic review earlier in the year. The basic argument, I think, for selling the entire investment portfolio in one chunk, as opposed to the other options the board considered, is the fact that it will enable the process of winding up this particular trust, which the board considers to be too small to have a viable future as an independent company, can be completed as quickly as possible. Over at Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact, meanwhile, ticker TLEI, where the board and investment manager have been at loggerheads for weeks over the collapse of the trust's largest investment project, a renewable solar energy development in India. The board has, as expected, now terminated the management contract of Thomas Lloyd Global Asset Management, uh, and that will take effect from the end of October, next month, in other words. The board says it thinks appointing a new transitional manager is the most effective way to finalise all the unfinished business that this trust faces and which has prompted the shares to be suspended for several months. That includes completing the valuations at the end of last year and at the end of June, and perhaps just as importantly, uh, enabling the 2022 report and accounts to be finally audited and signed off. The board says it hopes that the listing of the shares can be restored as soon as possible. Of course, all this follows the unusual situation of the board recommending shareholders to vote against a continuation vote so that it could, in effect, get rid of the manager and look for new ways to secure the company's future, which apparently, according to the board, a number of its largest shareholders do want to see it continue in some form. There will be a second general meeting on the 25th of September at which shareholders will vote on a resolution put forward by supporters of the management company to remove and replace the entire board. Uh, But that now, I think it seems pretty clear, is destined to fail. Turning to results, we've had one significant annual results announcement this week and a string of interims and updates. Too many to cover in detail here, 
As always, you can find a full list of all the week's investment trust announcements by subscribing to the Moneymaker Circle, our sister subscription offering, where this week we also have an in-depth profile of the Alliance Trust, the venerable global now multi-manager fund, and our usual summary of the latest movements in share prices, net asset values and discounts. You'll also find there a list of 15 large and liquid investment trusts, which in my view look attractive on discount grounds if we are indeed close to the end of the interest rate cycle. That, of course, being the big question of the hour. The annual results came from CQS New City High Yield, ticker NCYF, a debt fund that has the distinction of being one of the few trusts which has been able to issue new shares this year as it continues to trade at a premium. It reported an NAV total return of just 2% for the year to the 30th of June, a period obviously much influenced by the rise in interest rates, during which it issued 48 million new shares, raising £24 million, equivalent to around 10% of its market cap. The manager, Ian Francis, says he believes that after what was pretty much a nightmare year in 2022, we are nearing the top of the interest rate cycle and hopes to see a recovery in the capital values of higher yielding bonds, quote, in the next year or so. But he adds a word of caution. All this can be affected by external events. The yield on this one is currently a handsome looking 9.6%. Among the bigger names reporting interest this week, it's probably worth highlighting BH Macro, ticker BHMG for the sterling share class. This is the macro trading hedge fund managed by Brevin Howard. Having raised a tad over 300 million back in February when its shares were still trading at a premium, The raise coming at the request, the company says, of its larger wealth manager shareholders, it probably got badly burnt by the fallout from the Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse mini-banking crisis back in March. The fund had been positioned for further rises in US interest rates, which of course have since happened, but the impact of those banking concerns led to a sharp and sudden change in interest rate expectations, and that hurt the fund, costing it a significant chunk of its money. The NAV over the half year fell by 6.1%. As an aside, the board warns that the recent merger between Rathbones and Investec could create a stock overhang as the two firms have a combined 28% uh, holding in BH Magro. The discount on this one is now around 8%, a long way from the premium which it traded during most of the post-COVID period. Other larger trust reporting interims include uh, Vietnam Enterprise, ticker VEIL, which is up 10.3% uh, in NAV terms, but slightly behind its benchmark. North Atlantic Smaller Companies, ticker NAS, that's the trust managed by uh, Christopher Mills at Harwood Capital. Uh, that reported an adjusted NAV down 1.2%, that although coming from changes in the dollar sterling exchange rate. Then Balanced Commercial Property Trust, ticker BCPT, which reported an NAV total return of 0.8%. Offices were again the main drag in performance, and the manager of this trust says it's actively looking to reduce its exposure to that uh, sector. Interims also from Schroeder Asian Total Return, ticker ATR, which reported an NAV total return of just over 2%, which was some 4% ahead of its benchmark, and also Foresight Solar where the NAV was down 5% at the half-year period as its discount rate increased. This is one of the trusts alongside Hypnosis Songs, the two private equity trusts Oakley Capital and Literacy Capital, Seraphim Space and RTW Biotech opportunities that I will be discussing shortly with Tom Poynton. 
And other mostly smaller trusts reporting interim results ahead of their benchmarks include Henderson High Income, ticker HHI, which had a total return of 3% for the six-month period against benchmark 1.9%. AVI Japan Opportunity Trust, ticker AJOT, the activist uh, Japanese trust managed by Asset Value Investors, where the NAV total return was 5%, well ahead of the benchmark small decline. And special mention perhaps for Menharden Resource Efficiency, ticker MHN, the sustainable investment fund managed by Ben Goldsmith, which reported NAV total return of 16.9% which is ahead of its uh, 5.9% benchmark, RPI plus 3%. Uh, In passing, I just mentioned it's interesting that more trusts don't actually report a RPI plus X benchmark. In some ways, that might be a more informative description of how the trust is actually delivering its returns to shareholders. And then we had three trusts which reported interims uh, with sub-benchmark returns. They were Castlenow Group, NAV total return down 6.4%, well behind the FTSE All Share, its benchmark. Golden Prospect Precious Metals, NAV total return down 6.7%, slightly behind its benchmark. And Middlefield Canadian Income, ticker MCT, which reported a NAV total return down 2.9%. And finally, there were some updates from VH Global Sustainable Energy, Ecofin US Renewables, and Dunedin Enterprise. So this week, I was able to catch up with Tom Poynton, who is Executive Director of Barron & Grant, a relatively new investment trust specialist wealth management firm. I kicked off by asking him about one of the bigger stories of the week, which is the announcement by the board of Hypnosis Songs Fund, ticker S-O-N-G, that it is proposing to sell a chunk of its portfolio to another venture, which is also backed by the same management team and Blackstone, the private equity house. So, Tom, tell us about this. This is really an attempt by the board to do something about the discount, which has been persistent, with a continuation vote coming up very shortly. How do you think this went down in the market? Well, I think after the Roundhill offer uh, last week, that attention was inevitably going to turn to song with possibly the threat of potentially failing its upcoming continuation vote. It got a strategic review you know, as investors were unhappy with the persistent discount. And obviously, the board have tried to come up to rectify that, really. And, you know, the agreed sales of 465 million represent circa 20% of NAV, and they could be significant enough to potentially influence that. I think reaction-wise, yeah, the share price started positively yesterday, but actually finished about 6.5% down, I think, as investors digested the announcement. I think he's got you know several benefits. The remaining portfolio uh, is more mature. It's got an increased focus on the older and, and potentially more valuable music catalogues. It incurs limited tax liability. One of the surprises that Hypnosis announced was you know, a full sale of the portfolio would crystallise uh, around 245 million of tax liability, uh, which took the market by surprise at the time. Yeah, and ultimately, you know, the volume of buybacks that uh, could come around circa 16% of, of market cap uh, could be material enough to, to help reduce the discount. And obviously, reducing the leverage, paying down 250 million of the RCF would help reduce the leverage and the interest expense, which is climbed. And also the fact that they talked about reducing the management fee. But I think there are several concerns, particularly around the governance side of things. Blackstone ultimately being the end buyer. I saw some comments of well, which side of the table do the, the good team members sit? 
uh, at the investment advisor, who's going to sit on the side of Hypnosis Song's capital and who's going to sit on the side of Song. Have they cherry-picked the assets? And if so, why have they been sold at a 17% discount to NAV? Because uh, obviously that has read across for the rest of the remaining assets in the portfolio. And actually on the on the fee side of things, whether the investment advisor would make more money on the, the 29 catalogue portfolio than it loses in the reduction of fees. So but there was quite a lot to digest, I think, in the announcement. And again, I've looked today, it's not a massive response, but you know, lots in the in the melting pot for people to digest. Indeed, there is. It's quite a complicated announcement, as you say, with several parts to it. And having read some of the analyst notes, as you say, there's a lot to kind of dig through. And most of them, as I read it, were not particularly impressed by this because of those concerns that you mentioned. The shares did perk up last week on the back of that uh, Roundhill Music deal, as you said. But there hasn't been a similar kind of pop in the share price here. In fact, it's sort of settled down a little bit, as you say. So one have to say that probably represents a relatively disappointing uh, reaction as far as the board is concerned. And I guess there must be some concerns over this continuation vote that's coming up. And the other problem, would you agree, is that this is a related party transaction, as you say, which obviously creates conflicts. The problem being that this other venture that the managers of hypnosis have has an option to match any other bid that's made for the assets of Song itself. So that would be a deterrent to it, somebody else coming along. I guess the board would love to have the chance to get another bidder to come along and bid for some of this stuff and then see whether or not the related party does match it. Absolutely. And I think that's got a termination fee on there if that happens of sort of six and a half million if the board cancels and switches to another buyer. But I think that Blackstone relationship is always going to cloud hypnosis. If it survives a continuation vote, but thereafter the discount persists, I can probably see a, a, a scenario where actually Blackstone bid for the remaining portfolio and, and again, take the full thing private. And, uh, you know, I think that would be sad because if we're not careful, we're going to lose two music royalty holdings and that sector is going to disappear for the retail investor to gain access to it. So um, I think it's indicative of the situation that we're in with persistently wide discounts at the moment, but I can see that scenario playing out. Well, they do seem to be the obvious buyer, don't they, if nothing happens if the market can't convince itself that there is upside from here. Looking at the background of this, one of the issues I think has been circling around this trust is the valuation, who the valuers are, and what is the correct discount rate to apply to this kind of asset. And of course, there isn't a lot of comparisons to look at here. It's not as easy as in case of renewables or private equity. This is a relatively new industry. You could make an argument, for, I think, for any number of discount rates. But the general market feeling has been that this one is, is a bit too low in this particular case. Would you think there's some validity in that? Yeah, I think so. And obviously, I think in the transaction that happened around nil, they used the 9.15% discount rate. And I think both had used an 8.5% in terms of their valuation. So obviously, if you applied that across the rest of the portfolios, that was going to have an impact on net asset values. But I think particular to this transaction, again, I think investor confidence will hinge on the assurances that the remaining portfolio and net asset value isn't inflated and that the governance issues are addressed and ultimately that the investment advisor's incentives are aligned with the shareholders, which is the important thing. Indeed it is. I should just mention for regular listeners of the podcast who go back three years before your time, Tom, in a way, when we used to have a lot of jokes about uh, Barry Manilow and whether he was still alive or not. And uh, I noticed that Barry Manilow's catalogue is one of the ones that is being sold. So uh, not only is Barry Manilow himself still alive and kicking, but uh, so too, it seems, is his music catalogue. <laughs> Let's move on then from hypnosis songs. I mean, that remains on a very big discount to reported NAV anyway. 
It's still well over 40%, I think, and has been wider still. Let's move on then and talk about some other results we've had or announcements in the last few days. Uh, A couple of announcements from the private equity sector. I've been following the private equity sector quite closely. I'm sure you have too, because of those very big and persistent discounts we've seen. Increasingly, efforts by the boards of those trusts as well to do something about those wide discounts. But this week, we heard from two of the private equity trusts, Oakley Capital Investments and Literacy Capital. That's OCI and Book in terms of the tickers. Tell us about your uh, reaction to these two. We're a big fan of listed private equity and our portfolios are overweight accordingly. But OCI is a very good trust, you know, invests in private pan-European sort of tech-enabled businesses across technology and consumer, business services, education. It's a reasonably concentrated portfolio. I think there's 27 companies in there and there were resilient results, I think, in challenging market conditions. It's got a well-positioned portfolio that's showing robust growth. You know, I think they're cautious on on the valuation multiples and also the trading outlook. And when I looked at the results, I thought it was interesting that Stephen highlighted that, you know, half the NAV is either in cash or in, in newly made investments, still sort of evidence that a high level of deal activity even during these challenging markets. So, yeah, we like Oakley. Um, I think it's a, a very good, high quality portfolio run by a good team. And they're often the first investor in these companies, aren't they? So they only invest in a few sectors. They're one of the few private which actually hasn't felt the need to uh, reduce their valuations. But this one still trades on a 30% discount or so. Has come in a little bit in the last few weeks. But do you think they're doing enough to persuade investors to help them bring the discount in? Yeah, I think so. I think they can only really go from realisations. But sentiment is obviously still pessimistic at the moment to private market valuations. But I think therein lies the opportunity because the fundamentals seem robust listed private equity in general if you look across to some of the other names obviously you've talked about literacy capital they've reported exit premiums 54% to carry in value you've got HG capital uh, do it 32% apex have reported three exits in the first half with an average uplift of 24 pantheon again 27% up to the financial year 31st they're continuing to make realizations at uplifts and, and that's not really doing anything to the share price at the moment. But I think when sentiment changes, uh, when we get over the other side of this interest rate cycle, I think those discounts will narrow. Uh, and hopefully that's at a time when obviously net asset values are also rising. And that's where you get the double whammy of performance. Well, quickly on literacy capital, that's book. It is an unusual vehicle because it does dedicate some of its management fee to supporting charities, which is an unusual feature, but uh, a welcome one, I would say. Uh, I mean, they too haven't felt the need to reduce their NEV in any way at all so far. And they, of course, traded a pretty tight uh, discount compared to their peers, at least. Just remind us why you think that is. Why are they trading around par when most of the other private trusts are on these wide discounts ranging out down to 40% and more? Well, again, they've got sort of a unique approach, haven't they, that they focus on small to mid-cap sized private companies, you know, tend to be founder-led businesses. They've got significant skin in the game, you know, the Pinder family. Just a quick shout out there to the skin in the game piece, which we're big fans of at Baron and Grant from Investec, as I was reviewing that. But look, it's delivered, I suppose. That's the point. It's delivered over its life so far. It's got that slight nuance on the donating to literacy and helping disadvantaged children in the UK learn to read. 
And again, the underlying portfolio continues to, to be realised at good premiums. And I think they've suggested over the next 18 months that they've still got a number of realisations and their discount control mechanism that they've talked about is that if the discount does start to drift, that they'll actively buy shares and they've got the liquidity to do that. So I think it just seems quite a tightly run ship that looks like it's going to continue to outperform. I suppose the most significant uh, share buyback announcement we've seen quite a few across the sector. The one from Pantheon International was quite interesting in that they've committed to quite a substantial share buyback program, a significant percentage of their market cap. And sort of having tried something rather more modest last year, this looks more like a sort of blunderbuss they're trying to bring to establish the credibility of the buyback program. Uh, That seems to have worked a little bit. The discount has come in there somewhat, but it really does take commitment, does it not, to... uh, convince the markets that share buybacks are going to do something for discounts. Yeah, absolutely. But I, again, I think there is bigger things at play. I think the headwinds from the cost disclosure and some of the institutional money that's left, I actually think that there is buyers there that want to buy. But I think the impediment is actually the fact that they're quite costly in terms of the OCF figures that these either multi-assets or, or open-ended funds have got to reflect in their costs. I know Ben brilliantly and eloquently talked about that on a podcast a couple of weeks ago and, and there's, don't need to revisit the ins and outs. But I think people understand or particularly institutions understand the value in private equity. I think that is just an impediment. It makes them look more expensive if they're to buy them at the moment. And, and if we can obviously rectify this situation, then I can see discounts narrowing because I think buyers will come to the table. Well, let's take a further step back then and let's go further down, if you like, the private equity scale and, and look at a couple of early stage venture investors, one of which is Seraphim Space. That's another trust that attracted a lot of attention, rather like the Music Royalty Trust, because they're a novelty in investment trust terms. And also uh, RTW Biotech Opportunities, ticker RTW. What did you make of what they had to say? So Seraphin, if we start with that, predominantly invests in sort of early and growth stage and quoted space tech businesses. It's quite a thematic area, but there are probably some structural tailwinds to that. And their companies are based around space-based connectivity or precision navigation and sort of a broad range of applications. It's had quite a significant derating from launch. Uh, I participated PA with a little slither of allocation. Um, and it's not for, for widows and orphans, probably by virtue of its volatility. But again, it's been reasonable in terms of those results. I think it recorded sort of 30% revenue growth in its top 10 holdings and, you know, had a 188% increase in bookings, which probably indicates a, a strong future performance. It's reasonably well capitalized at the moment and it's holding sufficient cash for, for probably 12 to 18 months in terms of supporting the companies that are in the portfolio as well. And it's trading at a 50% discount. So as I said, it's not for widows and orphans. It's going to be at the higher end of the risk spectrum, but there's definitely the structural sort of tailwinds for that sector, I think, going forward. As you say, the shares have halved basically since the IPO a couple of years ago, but they have perked up recently. The discount has come in from 60 to 50 or something, so it's got a way to go. But it's, uh, as you say, it's it's not for widows and orphans. What about RTW Biotech? Biotech itself has been out of favour. It's got quite a good track record, this one, RTW. Uh, it's an American-based venture capitalist in the biotech space, but it's uh, suffering both from the general derating and from the fact that biotech's sort of out of favour. What do you think about that one? Have you Did you put any money in that one as well? <laughs> no, no, but... Uh... David Harris, who's at Cardin Capital, I think, who's got the mandate with RTW. I've been in contact with with David, so who's a good guy. And uh, so I've kept my eye on it since that, really. And 
the argument is around it's quite a concentrated portfolio. And obviously, with the announcement yesterday, it was that its largest holding rocket pharmaceuticals had agreed a trial design with the US FDA. And you know, the effect of that being about 10% of NAV was that rocket share price surged and that had an effect to, to probably to about 4% of RTW's net asset value. And as you say, it's pretty much been a, a bear market in the biotech sector. And they had the Prometheus acquisition as well from Merck. I think that was the largest holding at the time that got purchased. So you're starting to see all that deal activity and also the premiums with which, you know, those bids are coming in. So, yeah, again, not massive. This thing is about 200 market cap and, you know, it's trading at a, a 20% discount. But there's lots of names in that sector and it's been pretty beat up for, for a long time. But again, I, I do think that there are the structural tailwinds, you know, in that sector. And it's probably not the worst time to be considering it. I think it's interesting about this one. I mean, this one uh, came to the market in 2019. So it's still one of the relative newcomers. And relative newcomers in general have been hit more than the established investment trusts in a number of sectors. But it's interesting because, I mean, it was a bit rocket fueled, if I can put it that way, when it started. And then they're one of the first to start cutting their NAVs quite radically. So I think their valuation methodology is perhaps an example of some others. But since the summer of last year, it's picked up quite dramatically in terms of both NAV and the share price has, has kind of traded sideways since then. So uh, that, again, looks quite interesting. As you say, there must be a period when biotech comes back into fashion. I think if you broaden it out across some of that growth capital space, it's been beat up. The D rating has been significant. Names like Chrysalis that come into that, and it's had its criticism before with performance fees and its fee structure. But I get the sense there's probably some other ready portfolio companies that will look to come to market as and when that IPO market becomes more conducive and sentiment improves. You know, ARM was a big IPO in the US. I know that's got sort of the AI driven hype around it. But again, I, I do think that some of these underlying portfolio companies could get a good reception. And as such, there could be quite a significant re-rating from where some of these trusts are uh, 50% discounts. And as said, you're going to get a, a turbocharged double whammy when that discount narrows and, you know, the net asset value rises. Yeah, well, it has been quite an interesting week as well. I mean, it's been a bit of a risk-on week this week. Stock market's been quite strong. More people are apparently beginning to believe that we could actually have a soft landing. Uh, I'm not necessarily convinced by that myself. But let's talk then about the renewable sector. We've had some results starting to come out from those, those sectors. And this week, we heard from Foresight Solar, which is one of the two early solar funds, coming up to its 10th anniversary as a listed vehicle. So across the renewable energy sector, we've seen that derate quite significantly over the last 18 months or so. Combination of factors. What did you make of the latest Foresight Solar announcement? Yeah, I think the results contain not massive amount of new information, but obviously it reiterated the strong outlook for cash generation. And really, I think the share re-rating there, pending obviously the macro environment that you've just talked about, is going to be dependent on the execution of their disposal program and um, you know, thereafter the proceeds, whether they used to pay debt or whether they look to the most accretive opportunity. And, and that may be share buybacks with a 21% discount. So I think it's also worth noting, you know, Foresight, you know, probably a little bit less sensitive to short-term power prices than some of the other renewables and hence the influence on the asset values there. So, but it's paying an 8% dividend that's well covered you know, it sort of goes back to Andrew McHattie, what he said on the pod a few weeks ago, really, in terms of the space. You've got big, very wide discounts with quite well-covered high yields, and you can probably be paid to wait for a bit of a recovery, which I think will come as, again, we get over the cycle and, and there's less pressure on those discount rates. So I'm a fan of renewables. It's been tough to endure, you know, the D rating. 
But I think it's also worth noting that it has got a potential continuation vote if the shares trade wider than the 10% average discount over its full financial year. And it is at risk of this at the moment. I think up to the financial year, 24th of August, it's its average discount's been about 14%. And if that continuation vote was to trigger, then it could be sort of June 24 that that may happen. So that's the same for a number of those trusts in those sectors, whether it be infrastructure or renewables that you know have either got a regular continuation vote coming up or, or a continuation vote triggered by a discount. And if you look at some of the other pure solar funds, obviously there are other more diversified uh, renewable energy trusts that also invest in solar. But if we look at uh, comparison with Bluefield, solar is the obvious one because they both came to the market around the same time. And uh, there's Next Energy Solar, which has had a, a number of issues swirling around it. How do you rate Foresight in the context of its sort of peer group? The returns from Bluefield Solar have been a little bit better, I think, over the longer term. And the uh, performance year to date has been slightly better from Bluefield Solar, down around 12% against Foresight, down 20%. And the discount is slightly wider. It will be interesting to see how this one goes at the continuation vote if we get to one. Yeah, I think so. And the point is, if you don't hold both, then obviously you can get something at a wider discount at the moment that's well covered at an 8% yield. And Bluefield, I think Bluefield was one of the biggest risers yesterday. So somebody obviously fancied it. I think it was up close towards 7% yesterday. And I think, again, it's influenced by this cost disclosure. I think that's added weight to the derating because I think, obviously, as interest rates have risen and the risk-free rate has risen, the alternative income play of, of some of these trusts is obviously weakened. But from where we are at the moment, you're getting paid an 8% yield. And I think there's probably, you know, from a 20% discount, if that's the narrow, you're going to get a, a reasonable risk-adjusted total return from this sector. And I think... I said, if this cost disclosure, they're quite costly to hold these things. And if that was removed, I think, again, that would, I don't think it, it would materially narrow the discount on the sector, but I, I think it would help sort of drive it in over a long period of time relative to where it is now. So if we now then step back a little bit from this week's announcement, we'll just quickly talk about what your experience has been. As you say, you invest in investment trusts. That is your specialist universe. So what have you been saying to uh, your clients? I mean, have you felt people saying, what the hell's going on with all these uh, massive discounts? Or are you actually making a virtue out of that and emphasizing the potential for upside from here? Look, it's been tough. Our client base, you know, we specialize in investment trust, which is almost, I suppose, unique in that our core proposition is built around it. And our private client base is quite well informed in terms of investment trusts. A lot of them have invested for decades so that they've been a part of the ups and downs and discounts narrowing. So they understand they're bought into the journey and, and they're bought into the product. For those that are newer, obviously, if they've got in at an inopportune time to where discounts are at the moment, then obviously you've got to explain and carry them on the journey. Unless this time is different, you know, I'm sure that sector average discount will come back in. But thereafter is the opportunity. I genuinely believe it's a generational opportunity to consider switching to investment trusts. If you've got something trading at NAV in an open-ended relative to being able to buy that on basically a 16 to 20% discount, I think history suggests that you know some great risk-adjusted returns across the risk spectrum have been generated from here on a medium to long-term view. And, and obviously, that's what we're <laughs> trying to market to people. But I think you've been a part of you know, the industry for a long time and you've seen the the cycles that have happened and when discounts have gone wide. I mean, I think Numis produced a chart that was 33 years of history and this current discount is really only surpassed by the global financial crisis. And I think when sentiment turns, I think interest rates could be stickier for longer and that's going to have an impact. But I think there's going to be a point where some of the headwinds will turn into tailwinds if 
the cost disclosure regime got rectified. I think that would help. I think then when sentiment turns, obviously that's the point where retail investors are likely to pile back in. They're having a bigger influence in terms of investment share registers and their makeup. So I think there's sort of, hopefully, nobody can predict the nadir or where the bottom is, but it feels like we're not far off. You know, and as said, therein lies the opportunity for people on a, on a medium to long-term view. And the opportunities are vast. It depends on your risk profile and it depends whether you want income or whether you want growth. But I, I think it's, a, as I said, generational opportunity. I can't finish our conversation, Tom, without uh, talking about something equally important, which is cricket. Now, Simon Elliott, who I started the podcast with, you know, was a great cricket fan, a great enthusiast, but you actually were a professional cricketer before you got into the financial services business. So I've got to ask you, first of all, you know, is the England men's team, and I must say this is men's I'm talking about here, because women's cricket has come way into the fore now, is England going to win the World Cup, which is starting uh, next month? I think they've got a good chance. I don't think it's going to be easy, particularly in, in Indian conditions, but they've got a lot of guys now that have got experience over there, uh, having played in the IPL and, and spent more time over there. And they've just got an incredibly experienced team. You've seen what Stokes has done in the past week, banging 180 again. I mean, it's, it's insane what he continues to achieve. But it's going to be tough. There's some teams that are peaking. Australia look good. I mean, Pakistan might be an outsider in terms of get into those final stages. But I hope for cricket's sake and I hope for the... We got so close with the Ashes this summer and obviously the, the couple of days that got rained out at, at Old Trafford really hurt because I think thereafter it was everybody bought into it, the basball nature of it, and it's bringing a few different people back to test cricket, which is great for the game. That's an interesting question, of course. The Ashes did wonders for general interest. But you do you think that actually there is too much cricket now? Or what, you know, if you have a choice at the weekend or during an evening, what kind of form of cricket would you watch as a first choice as a former county cricketer? What should be your first choice to watch? Is it a county match, you know, Derbyshire against North Hats or something? Or is it Stokes, you know, tonking the ball all over the, all over the surrounding area? Well, obviously, I played county cricket, so it still sits close to me. I'm still involved with Derbyshire and... Uh, but it's challenging. It's challenging for the county game, particularly now with the direction of travel and how big the game is in India and franchise money. And there's lots of things that go into the melting pot, members own clubs and, you know, it needs to adapt. There's no doubt about that. And uh, it's an exciting time for, for cricket, I think, but it's got its challenges. It's just starting to get a foothold in America. I don't know if you saw the Major League Cricket over there now and the growth opportunities are, are big and they're in the opportunities for the players. I mean, cricket was always known as a champagne lifestyle on a beer budget, where it's becoming more of a, a champagne lifestyle on a champagne budget, I think, uh, for the opportunities that exist for some of these guys now. But yeah, it's an interesting time. But I think whether you're a Puritan and you love test cricket or whether you're new to the game and you're enthused by the 100, as long as we're increasing that foundation, that's ultimately what cricket needs. You know, great to see so many young girls watching at the 100 and the influence that it's had on the girls' game and the, and the women's game and the growth there. And as I said, I just want England to be strong and that foundation to be broad so that we can have people play in at the local clubs and find the next Ben Stokes there, basically. So you would be perhaps hoping that your kids, will, whether they're girls or boys, will get a chance to have that champagne lifestyle that uh, you were just a few years too early to get the full benefit of it. Well, look, I don't, I don't begrudge them for doing it. It's just how the game's gone. And yeah, look, sport gave me a lot. It's a funny sort of journey I've had to end up in the investment trust world. Um, 
but yeah, there's lots of transferable skills. Uh, Harvey, who works alongside me, he was actually my sort of understudy as a wicketkeeper. He went on to take my job at Derbyshire and he'll probably end up taking my job at B&G if I'm not careful. But yeah, I think it's, it gives you a broad experience coming then into a new industry. And uh, I love my time with cricket to be able to play professional cricket and have a hobby turn into a profession and be lucky for somebody to, to pay you to do that is, is amazing. And actually yesterday was the 11th year 11 year since that we won the county championship division two title for Derbyshire, which was amazing. It was a Leicester City-esque type victory. And, and what you get from that in terms of players, you learn from camaraderie, confidence, unity. It was yeah, a special thing to be part of and one of my proudest achievements. So I've got to try and translate that now into financial services and, and uh, the investment trust world. But you know, we're equally passionate about the investment trust sector and its position in UK financial services. And I'll be honest, I just wish that policy makers in this country and the regulator championed our sector as much as we're passionate about it. That is a very good note to, to finish. So that was Tom Poynton, Executive Director of Barron & Grant, the wealth management firm that invests exclusively in investment trusts. It was a pleasure this week to catch up with Dale Nichols, the manager of Fidelity China Special Situations. It's been a fascinating year for China watchers and indeed for investors generally trying to make sense of all the wonderful things going on in the world. Is it fair to say, Dale, that the hopes at the start of this year that uh, you know China reopening would lead to a significant improvement in Chinese investment returns, uh, but that hasn't really happened so far, has it? There's been a bit of a disappointment in that sense. No, I think that's definitely fair to say. There was that sort of hope around recovery. And I think, you know, probably the biggest factor that has brought us back down is, is general economic concerns. So clearly, particularly from the second quarter, we've seen a clear slowdown. Obviously, the government has that 5% target for the full year. I think we're still likely to get close to that. But I think probably original expectations was that was a pretty easy hurdle. But I think, you know, that's probably looks sort of more on the money now. So I think there's been a clear slowdown. I think there's probably a few factors behind that. Obviously, we've got weakness in the property sector that continues. And I think that also clearly impacts consumer confidence as well. Obviously, it's a it's a pretty significant part of the consumer balance sheet. So I think there's concern around that. You know, we've also had some pretty well-publicized layoffs, particularly from some of the big tech companies, which incidentally has helped their earnings quite a bit. They've had a good earnings season on lower costs, but I think that's probably dented uh, general consumer sentiment somewhat as well. Tell me your thoughts on this sort of property crisis. I mean, I've been reading reports for, you know, I don't know, five years now saying that the property sector, the overbuilding and so on in, in China is going to become a problem. It seems to have finally kind of happened. It didn't happen for a while. Where does that end, do you think? Is that manageable? In general, I think it is. Clearly, you know, there's been some overbuild and I think it's fair to say that some of the, you know, the private developers are in trouble and probably you'll see particularly some of the smaller ones not make it through this. You mentioned inventories, and I guess this kind of is a point for the market overall. There's quite a big divergence between the top tier cities and lower tier cities with bigger problems in the lower tier cities. So if you look at inventory levels, actually, they're reasonable in first tier cities. It's not as positive in, in the lower tier cities. I think, you know, it's important to keep in mind that through the whole common prosperity push, there was quite a tightening around the property sector around a lot of the you know restrictions around mortgages, the levels of, of deposits and that sort of thing that you needed to put down. So there's actually a fair bit that can be done in releasing that and undoing those restrictions. And that's actually what we're seeing happen right now. So clearly the government is taking more action to address that. I think it's fair to say that 
overall, from a regulatory perspective, is a lot more focus on on growth now. So I'm actually uh, more optimistic that we can see a bottom in pricing. And I think pricing is the most important element here. I think people need to have the perception that that pricing is stable. And I think the actions that are being taken should be able to achieve that, at least in first-tier cities. And hopefully that can put sort of a bottom under consumption and sort of consumer confidence going forward. Now, the consumer balance sheet is actually in really strong shape. I mean, we talked about the impact of property, which from a wealth perspective can hurt. But at the same time, you know, the overall savings levels have increased significantly over COVID. So again, if we can see a bottom in consumer confidence, I think there's good potential for that to be released. We had some concern about the regulatory impact of Chinese authorities coming in and you know making steps in the education sector, for example. And that's not a particularly good backcloth for any market, I think, when you've got these unexpected interventions. Have we seen any more evidence of that? Or do you think that the Chinese authorities sort of learned anything from that process? Well, if you take a look at the regulatory actions, you know, in the long term, there is some cyclicality to that. You know, you go through these periods where it tightens and loosens. And clearly, what we've been through is probably the deepest and longest period of regulatory tightening. But when we look at the rhetoric that's coming out of out of the leaders these days, there's a much greater focus on growth. So I think we're much more likely to see continued easing on the regulatory front. You know, what we do here is about the implementation of, of past policies. You do still need to watch certain areas, but I think you're much more likely to see easing. And we're actually getting more positive signs of a lot more support for the private sector and, and sort of growth in general. You know, again, looking at the long term, there's still that goal of doubling GDP per capita again. And you clearly can't do that without a vibrant private sector and a strong consumer. So I think in general, in terms of direction, I think things are more likely to move in the easing direction from here. It's a bit strange perhaps to focus on the negatives to start with, and then we can talk about the positives. One of the big negatives is around concerns about the relationship between Chinese and the United States and all those kind of geopolitical tensions. In terms of encouraging investment flows into China and so on, do you think there has become another concern that may be deterring investors from looking at China in perhaps the same way they used to a few years ago? I think it clearly is. I mean, it's in the headlines every day. I think it you know, has clearly impacted sentiment. I think over time, it'll be more accepted. There's no question that you know these two nations, there's going to be friction with us for decades. So I think that's something that you know investors will get used to over time. I'm very focused on the impact of companies at the stock level. So you know I'm very focused on supply chains, companies that are sourcing, for example, high-end semiconductors from the US. That sort of thing is something that you really need to watch. Reliance on sort of high-end semiconductor manufacturing equipment and that sort of thing is what you need to watch. Likewise, for the exporters, I think it's something that you need to consider. But the feeling on the ground when you're in China is companies are really just getting on with it. There's a lot of companies that are not impacted by this at all. There's a lot of structural drivers. There's a huge amount of consolidation that's coming through in a lot of sectors. So the winners are winning and getting stronger. And it could still impact overall multiples, but I'm of the belief that you know stock prices will follow earnings over time. And I'm sure we're going to talk about valuations and valuations are at very, very attractive levels right now, given the concerns that we've talked about. So again, a bottom-up stock picker looking at things from that level, risk reward is actually you know, looking pretty attractive. Well, that was my next question was going to be about valuations, funny enough. Can you put some numbers around the valuations, how far they've fallen and how attractive they look to you at this point? So if you look at MSCI China, which is the benchmark we work off, you're looking at about 10 times forward earnings. That's probably a bit over a, a standard deviation off historical levels. 
And at the same time, China's clearly underperformed other markets. So if you're thinking about valuation relative to this part of the world, but particularly versus the US, that gap has just opened up pretty significantly. And there's just a number of, of companies across a range of sectors that are just showing even greater discrepancy versus sort of historical levels. And I guess what's interesting is that this is coming despite an earnings backdrop that is actually not that bad. So, you know, clearly second quarter was bad, but first quarter was strong. You know, looking at things, we're probably looking at sort of teens growth in terms of EPS growth in the second half, which I actually think is going to look pretty attractive versus a lot of other markets where economies are slowing and it's going to be harder to grow earnings. So I think versus the growth outlook in the short term and even and even longer term, things are stacking up pretty well. Can you give some examples of things you have been adding to the portfolio and those kind of valuations? You mentioned some of them being quite extreme. Is it actually your selection price is still being driven fundamentally by a value philosophy, if you like? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's really about risk reward. So looking at what you're paying for sort of the, you know, the earnings outlook and I guess your confidence around that earnings outlook. It's interesting in that, I mean, you're sort of at a time when there's actually ideas across a range of sectors in my mind. A lot of the deeper cyclicals look pretty interesting now. I think in the industrial space, it's interesting, you know, from a cyclical perspective, but also a midterm perspective. There's a lot of domestic substitution that's going on in the market. And at the same time, there's a lot of companies that have just invested significantly in R&D and seeing the benefits of that come through in pricing and market share gains. I should say as well, there's consolidation. Relative to a lot of other markets, markets are still very fragmented, but what we're seeing, and maybe it's on the back of what we've been through in COVID and, you know, sort of a weaker economic environment, consolidation is really, we think, accelerating. So that's sort of creating opportunities in that space as well. Like I say, it's broad-based. I mean, some of the financials, you know, I still think look quite cheap. And then if you're looking at consumer overall, given the concerns that we've had around the consumer in the discretionary area, there's there's pockets of value as well. So it's actually pretty broad-based. You know, we talked about the e-commerce companies, pretty much all the top players, if you factor out cash and their investments, kind of got to a single-digit multiple, which is pretty significant, clearly, compared to global peers. Even if things are slowing, they're still going to be able to grow their gross merchandise value over time. So it's actually pretty broad-based in terms of where we're seeing the opportunities, really. Well, I guess it wouldn't be 2023 if we didn't have at least one question about AI and artificial intelligence. That seems to be the, the headline narrative of the year that's... Uh, helping to keep stock markets buoyant. And of course, China is potentially a very big player in this field, are they not? Are you playing that theme? And if so, how are you doing that? And what are your thoughts about where that might take your Chinese portfolio? AI is something, you know, when you think about it broadly, it's something that really companies are going to be deploying and have deployed across a range of industries, obviously, you know, particularly the big tech guys. If you're talking about the chat GPT equivalents and that sort of thing, obviously Baidu is probably the first there. It's sort of a bit early to say if they're going to be the clear leader. There are other companies that we think are sort of close behind. In terms of potential hardware beneficiaries, we've seen a lot of the companies in the space sort of move up significantly. So I'm not sure that from a value perspective, there's as much potential there. But we sort of be looking at individual companies and seeing who are going to be the leaders amongst the Baidu's and sort of the other big tech players that are introducing their own models. We should see them roll out over the next few months. Obviously, the Americans are concerned about AI and the fact the Chinese might get technology and take a lead there and so on. Is that going to hold back that sector in China? I think it will for some players. You know, obviously, there's a huge rush to get your hands on on GPUs now. I think it's fair to say a lot of particularly the big tech companies have been pretty aggressive in sourcing, but that can be a challenge over the midterm. And um, 
I think it's fair to say that the domestic players really aren't there in terms of equivalent product. So in the longer term, yes, potentially. In the shorter term, like I said, the big guys have been pretty aggressive in, in, in building up the stockpiles. So I don't think it's something that you'd need to worry about in the short term. So if we sort of step back a little bit and look at the performance of the trust over a longer period of time, obviously the last five years, I guess, have been pretty dull, should we put it that way. Uh, haven't been much in the way of returns over a five-year period for various reasons. Does China still deserve a place in an investor's portfolio because of the kind of potential returns that we could see there now, not least because of this uh, relatively poor performance over the last period? I think it absolutely does deserve a position. Clearly, China will grow as a percentage of global GDP. We're sort of high teens right now in terms of that representation in global markets. You know, we're still in the sort of low single digits. So China is very underrepresented in portfolios. I think it's also fair to say that it will, as we've talked about, outgrow global growth. So it's going to occupy an even bigger part. But more importantly, there's going to be some great investment opportunities. You know, this is a market, as you follow over time, that does get impacted by the headlines and the geopolitical concerns. But at the same time, there are great companies that are coming through. And, you know, again, I'm of the belief that stock prices will follow earnings over time in the long term. So if we can identify those companies, it's going to be great opportunities and obviously very interesting right now with, with valuations and sentiment at, uh, at sort of the low levels that we're seeing. Can I ask you then about your gearing in the trust? The trust is uh, notable because it does have quite a high amount of gearing in it. Have you been increasing that? Remind me what your policy is around gearing and how you manage that. So the main limits are around 130% gross gearing. I focus, I guess, mostly on where sort of net gearing is coming out as an indication of my level of bullishness and sort of the opportunities that I'm seeing in the market. Generally, over the period I've been managing, there has been quite a bit of opportunity. So that has sort of ranged between 110 to 125 in terms of the overall net gearing. And right now, Again, reflecting the opportunities that I'm seeing, that is more at that one, two, five level. So we're kind of at a time where you know, I think you probably got the sense from me that there's a lot of value in the market across a range of sectors. So in my mind, this is the time to be bullish. Um, I realize there's a lot of fear out there in the market, but at the same time, this is the time to leverage the tools that we have. And so actually the gearing is, is relatively high. The gearing has been a drag on performance. We've managed to stay ahead of the market over the last 12 months and longer. But clearly, that's been a drag on performance. We've been able to offset that with the stocks that we've had in the portfolio. But I'm hopeful that that drag can be a boost to performance going forward, along with the stock picking, if sentiment can start to improve. Next year, I think you'll be uh, coming up to your 10th year of managing the trust. What have been the highlights for you? And what have been the disappointments for you? I think we've talked about the disappointments. That would be just the overall levels of the market over the past few years. You know, the market has clearly derated but I think that is what presents the opportunity going forward. The highlights are you know, the opportunities that we see during these times when, when sentiment is pretty negative. And I think I'm also pretty excited about the private part of the portfolio as well. We you know, obviously through the trust have the ability to invest in private companies as well. And that's giving us sort of, I think, an even wider opportunity to access the opportunities in China. So seeing the success that we've had there, but also the potential success going forward, I think is something that's encouraging. But for me, I hope it's coming through that this is sort of a, a really interesting time in terms of the opportunities. So now's the time to really sharpen your pencil and you know, hopefully get set for better markets and sort of recognition of the earnings growth that the companies we own can deliver. 
So the China story, effectively, I mean, when Fidelity started the trust or when Anthony Bolton started the trust, it was a kind of long-term story. And this is cashing in on China's uh, growth and emergence in the trading world. And it's, uh, you know, status of moving from emerging to mature economy. That thesis is still intact. Obviously, that's what you're telling us. I think absolutely. And again, yeah, I'm focused on what's happening at the company level. There's a huge amount of innovation that's going on at the company level. I've mentioned that sort of industrials are a, a big part of the portfolio, but you know, there's companies that have just been investing significantly in R&D. You're seeing that coming through in pricing. You're seeing it come through in, in market share gains. You're seeing the emergence of China's dominance in some new industries as well. If you think about things like EVs, electric vehicles, China now is probably making 50% of the world's EVs. They own even a greater share of the supply chain in EVs. And frankly, I struggle to see how a lot of global players are going to be able to compete, just given that scale that they have in that industry. You could say the same for the solar supply chain as well. So I think it's worth noting that, again, despite the headwinds, you've got these real growth industries and new industries emerging where China is, is again, emerging as a real global player. So that was uh, Dale Nichols, manager of the Fidelity China Special Situations Trust, the largest Chinese investment trust in the universe. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.